0: race is on. This is the second edition of the F1 podcast from the new home of motorsport coverage and today's big topic is Ferrari's underachievement. No world championships in 11 seasons and just 29 wins from 215 races is more limping horse than Cavallino Lampante. So is there any reason to expect 2020's high hopes to deliver anything other than frustration? I'm Ed Straw, and helping me to get to the bottom of this question today are the race's assistant editor, Lucy Mawson, and my fellow F1 correspondent, Scott Mitchell. So, Lucy, are you ready for your podcast debut?
1: I absolutely am, yeah. This is bucket list stuff. Very excited to be here um, and to talk about our topic today, Ferrari's underachievement.
0: If this is on the bucket list, you must no, yeah, you, you must it's have worked a, through a lot of things.
1: It's a depressing, we're at the depressing tail end of the bucket list that this is uh yeah.
2: Nothing wrong with that. No, that's
1: wrong. Just, yeah.
2: Speaking of depressing uh, tail-enders, Ed, I think it's time you introduce me. <laughs> yes, so I've got a very special uh, introduction for you because I decided I'd ask
0: you, how's the land of flat pack furniture and meatballs?
2: Very original. Uh, yeah, it's fine. It's really cold, actually, at the moment, uh, but I'm I'm fine. I'm quite snug in my nice warm flat in South Stockholm, and I'm delighted, actually, because just before you sp- started to speak to me, I remembered to turn on my recording device. So we are actually going to record a podcast. I dread to think what would have happened if I'd got half an hour in and realised. I think you'd have been quite disappointed. In well, me.
0: there's always something to be disappointed in you. That, that's obviously the voice of Scott Mitchell, for those wondering. He likes Swedish things, and uh, he's a bit of an expert on Ferrari, so the ideal person. So uh, we've got a, a super team for this, uh, this particular podcast. So let's, uh, let's crack on with it. Um, Scott, Ferrari's failings last year have been talked about in depth. Is there any reason to expect things to change in the coming season to make a really serious title bid possible rather than just sort of flattering to deceive as they've done in recent seasons?
2: Well, what's the the cliché? Is it like the more things change, the more they stay the same?
0: Reaching for a cliché straight away. Good start. Yeah,
2: well, exactly. But... I think for Ferrari it's the it's the other way around. I think they're hoping that the more things stay the same, the more the, the bigger picture will change for them because there's a lot of stability on the Ferrari side in terms of the team itself. And Mattia Bonotto, the team boss, always refers to this idea that they're quite a young team. Obviously that doesn't mean that they're Sometimes it might look like they're being run by teenagers, but they're not. They are being run by run by by grown adults. But they're people that have been in their roles for a shorter period of time, shall we say, than the likes of Mercedes. And as as you know, Ed, Mercedes is just such a such a an, an all conquering team because everyone knows their role really well, and and they just they tend to execute it perfectly across the board. And Ferrari, I guess, putting the right people in the right positions is one thing. Giving them time to then act on that is another. So I think. One of the big things they're hoping for is that there will be natural improvement just by the fact that when Bonotto came in last year as team boss, he was the chief technical officer before, there was this this, this change of culture in, in Marinello and it takes time for that sort of stuff to bed in. So if you combine the sort of general improvement that they're aiming for just with a bit more cohesiveness, uh, I think that plus extra emphasis on reliability... Uh, changing their processes at the factory and through the, everything from the design phase to validation to implementation on the racetrack to improve that, giving the car more uh, aerodynamic performance and and being sharper as a race team, that is what they're hoping will sort of come together to be this package that that will finally topple Mercedes.
0: It's a good point when it comes to Mercedes because everything there is just so so secure. They really know their processes well they're confident they've got all that success underpinning it they don't have to overreach for these things but I think the other interesting thing is that Ferrari when it's been successful the past few years it's kind of done it through being overpowered in certain areas overpowered literally last year previously there was a point where they were very strong on on some of the slower tracks because they were sort of very powerful in some areas but not all of them whereas Mercedes is just the all-round Package, and I guess Lucy, what Scott said there is he's basically listed every area, hasn't he? And yeah. that's, that kind of tells you how good you've got to be to mm. get to a level of competing with Mercedes yeah. on a weekly basis. Certainly.
1: Exactly obviously Mercedes in recent years have looked like absolute perfection they've not really put a foot wrong and when they have it it's been so rare and has been recovered very very quickly Um, I'd be interested to think if either of you think that there's anything um, sort of weak points that that might flare up in in 2020 especially as focus shifts towards 2021 and whether Ferrari stands a chance of um, sort of striking back at those moments.
0: Well the big question as ever Scott is Aero isn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, but also on the on the engine side as well, because you've got this situation at Mercedes where what they've done brilliantly over the last six years is they've given this impression of perfection. There haven't been a one hundred percent perfect, there have been errors from the race team, they've had reliability problems, they've had uh in twenty eighteen the delayed introduction of the of the first engine upgrade that year. Uh Lewis Hamilton spoke last year about needing um Needing less drag and more power for for the, for this season, so there there are, there have been times where where Mercedes have dropped the ball. It's just Ferrari have just dropped the ball more, and they haven't been in a position to pick it up as much as they need to be. Uh, so I think the big thing, I th- I I think they they could they could drop the ball on 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 the car side, but because we've got stable regs, I don't think that will be where Mercedes comes up short this year. I think the bit that will be a bigger test and the biggest test they've faced so far. Is having, in theory, Red Bull and Ferrari on their heels from the very beginning, if not ahead of them. And we haven't seen Mercedes under that sort of pressure; certainly not sustained over a title bid. And Ed, as you must have seen in your time covering F ,one when a team is under pressure, that's where they have to be. That's where they have to stand up and be accounted for, isn't it?
0: Yeah, pressure changes things. It means that decisions. It's not as if people are running around in panic, but if you have a little bit of a margin. Your decisions are all less critical, shall we say? You know, if you've got a fundamental advantage, it gives you a few tenths. So, if you give away a tenth, it doesn't really matter. But if things are really close, it gets harder, and you start trying to overreach. I actually almost feel this is what Ferrari has suffered from for the past few years, in that there were times when they almost tried too hard with things because they were having to really push, and they knew they had to kind of go up that that level rather than just letting it uh, letting it come to them. But yeah, Red Bull is an interesting curveball, and if you have. If Mercedes were being pushed by two teams, Ferrari and Red Bull, that that could that could change the equation a, a little bit. But the, the thing is, the longer that Mercedes has been robust and effective, the the more secure it is. And I think the the interesting thing is they they just have a they do have a, a bit of a car for all seasons I mentioned earlier. They they're very very keen on just designing the, the concept and everything is about having the the best car on the average. Of the season, and that does mean that outlier circuits they they are a bit more vulnerable on, which has been the case uh, the case in the past but outlier circuits are outliers, so that 's not a major a major problem so they they do know there 'll be weekends where where they where they won 't win whatever uh, happens if there 's a real kind of shooting war, so to speak, we probably will see things made harder for for mercedes because little little mistakes will become that, that would have gone completely unnoticed previously will become. Big mistakes. And I guess that's what, we all, that's what we want to see, isn't it? We want to see a proper, proper battle because it's when there's a big battle that all these things are laid bare. And We want to see Lewis Hamilton pushed as hard as he can. In fact, Lewis wants to be pushed as hard as he can as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. He must be so boring to just spend every sort of Sunday just yeah like oh, do I even bother turning up so yeah I guess and um, do you think that threat from Red Bull will be there this year we've obviously promised it for like or thought that it was coming for a very long time do you think the evidence at the tail end of last year suggests that it will be a present threat right from Melbourne or I mean it's hard to say before testing so <laughs> Yeah well, the, the thing is
0: we've sort of said this before there's been a trend where Red Bull have got really strong towards the end of the season you think oh yeah right this year they'll be there and they weren't last year we should say that i think the the aero reg changes played a part in that with the front wing that that threw them a bit of a curveball and it took them that they, they had a series of upgrades deployed over the races up to and including austria that they really needed to to, to make those changes to get the car working so it's really really hard to say with red bull because we've seen this trend before but we've also seen them when there hasn't been a real change not quite making that that progression so I, i'm interested to see what i'd like to see from them is not almost not too an aggressive a car, I'd like to look at it and say, yeah, you can see that's just a clear step on the concept from last year and then hopefully if they do that right, they should be thereabouts and of course there's a Honda question as well, Scott.
2: Yeah, and I think Honda feels vaguely confident that they they sort of know roughly how much they they need to improve or they have an idea of how much they need to improve and whether they will is the big question mark but the reason Red Bull and, and Honda, they are especially relevant to the Ferrari situation because we've seen time and again Ferrari failed to, to to rise to that challenge from Mercedes, and I can think of two or three seasons now where Red Bull just gradually outdevelops them, and instead of challenging for 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 wins, Ferrari slip back, and they become not they're not even the second best team anymore. They they slip back to being the the, the third best team. They, I, I think they ended last year behind Red Bull and Honda, and that's that puts big pressure on on Ferrari this year because. It's not even a case of making up that gap to Mercedes. That is obviously the ultimate goal, and if they do that, they will. There's a good chance they'll beat Red Bull anyway. But they've almost got to reclaim their position in the pecking order before they can go on and, and mount that title bid.
0: And of course, there's the whole question of the engine side for for Ferrari. There was all sorts of talk about that last year. We don't really need to rake over over that, but it's clear they they need a a step in terms of, particularly on race day, because it's all well and good having a car that at times was able to get you pole position. Obviously, Charlotte had more poles than anyone last season, but that's that's always difficult. And Mercedes, more often than not, even in the races that Ferrari won, Mercedes often had a superior car in race conditions. They just couldn't get the track position from uh, from Ferrari. So that's, again, it comes back to this sort of average performance, doesn't it? And that's probably what Ferrari's going to be looking for in this season. So
1: you not- don't think there's one like major thing, neither of you could choose like one major thing that Ferrari need to do to to finally mount that title bid in 2020
0: i think if it's one thing it's it's downforce isn't it and downforce ultimately no matter how important the engines are etc cetera, etc cetera, that's still the number one performance differentiator so if they can get that they lacked a little bit on front downforce last season they took a step with the singapore upgrade but they still weren't quite there and if they can get that downforce potentially by i'm interested to see what they what concept they go with the front wing because they had they they went down the the kind of the unloaded outboard design, as, as as we talk about, where the kind of wing drops away towards the end plates. Easier to control, less peak downforce, less peak load. Now, Red Bull and Mercedes made that that loaded outboard work well for themselves last year. It was a little bit tricky to do. Some of the midfield teams tried the loaded version and struggled with it. So, I'm really interested to see if Ferrari go more towards just maximising what they can get in terms of the load on the front wing and as a result can they control the airflow well enough to energize the floor the barge boards the rest of the car because it's obviously all connected so yeah it's in short it's downforce
2: the suggestion last year from Bonotto was that uh that they wouldn't be changing that 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 front wing concept because they felt that actually what they'd proven over the course of the season is that that had, that concept itself wasn't what limited their aerodynamic potential that's certainly what they felt anyway uh by that point this was he was this was when he was speaking in december so you're already well down the design path so he's either trying to you know put people off the scent a little bit or that is firmly what ferrari had committed to so it will be interesting to see but i oh, as much as aero is of, aero is king in f1 but just for the sake of differentiation i'm going to say race weekend execution i think that's the area that just even though the car wasn't as good as mercedes over the season Ferrari still should have still should have had way more points than they did last year, just because of their own errors, and and that comes down to the race team itself, the strategists, the drivers, and to an to an extent, reliability and the work they do back at the factory. It all comes together for race weekend execution, and that was just something that that they 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 were weak at. But you're right to say that there are lots of little things, and actually, I know we're playing. I'm enjoying this little game of past the question, uh, but I'm <laughs> going to throw it back to you, Lucy, because. Obviously, we see we see on a weekly basis almost, and hear constantly about this little thing they're working on. This little thing, this has let them down. This has let them down. But just sometimes, it is valuable to have that sort of bigger picture. And if you look back at last year, in particular, and then throw it forward to this season, could could you spot? like what exactly was tripping Ferrari up from a distance or did it just look like they'd go into any given weekend and just something something would go wrong
1: yeah I think probably the latter and sort of linking back to what Ed said earlier about um, panicking when you don't have such a clear advantage that it's easier to to trip up and when you do trip up then it seems to be a bigger mistake than it actually is Um, just watching uh, you know from home and just seeing um like something that seems to have been handed to them on a plate maybe one weekend like Bahrain for example and just watching that and watching that race and just thinking oh, this is going to be it and then you know this could be the mercedes versus ferrari thing right at the start of the season already um and then George just sort of unraveling and it just watching it all unspool like a like a ball of wool, basically, um, around them. Um, So, yeah, nothing specific, but I just think that there was always something like that happening every weekend. And every weekend where we talked about it all unraveling for Ferrari, it was just, yeah, it was just like a domino effect, I guess. Um, The pieces sort of fell around them.
0: And I think you're right there in that there were lots of different reasons. And that's almost a bigger worry, because on the one hand that means there's not a single recurring problem. Mm,
1: exactly. But if there's
0: a single recurring problem rather than just everything, it's at least a little bit easier.
1: Yeah, you can identify that that is where we're going wrong, we can fix that. But if everything is sort of going wrong, then where do you start? And if, if something different is going wrong every weekend, then how do you know where to focus your efforts onto improving?
2: And the reliability side of things is is a good example of that because when I spoke to Bonotto in, I think it was in Mexico last last year, we this was... Before uh, Leclerc even had the engine problem in 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 the U in the USA that hurt his Grand Prix there, and then um, he needed an engine change uh, for for Brazil. But he he said the problems that they had in Bahrain. You use that as an example. Um, Vettel's problem in Austria, Ed, if you remember that in in qualifying, and then the horrific brace of qualifying problems in Germany, a race where they should have easily been on the front row. Lock that out. And they have uh, problems. I think Vettel didn't take part at all, and then Leclerc couldn't take part in the top 10 shootout. But as I said, they're all different things. So uh, w- while it comes down to one fundamental problem, which is clearly at some point in the process, we're not validating this well enough, or we're not designing things well enough, it, you have so many different fires to put out. And that's what Ferrari's been focusing on for, for 2020. So again, there is some stability in terms of the personnel, nothing on the surface changes for ferrari this year um maybe we will see some aero tweaks that sort of thing but it's it's a lot of stuff behind the scenes that's going to add up to the change that ferrari needs for 2020 i
0: find it difficult to imagine ferrari can win the title in the coming year because i think if they have a car that's good enough to are the operation there's there's almost just too many areas they need to improve on it'd be great if they were in the title fight because the more the merrier but it just seems like that team's got a bit further to evolve, and you just look at how secure everything is at Mercedes. It's uh, that's a huge talk. You know, Mercedes is. You, you can make a case with the current Mercedes team being the greatest Grand Prix team there, there has ever been. They've they prevailed through a major rule change in seventeen, a more minor but a significant one in in nineteen. They've had this unprecedented run of six back to back championships. Yeah. You know, that, that's so Ferrari needs
1: something to unravel there, maybe more than they need to maybe that's more like I don't know which one is more likely whether they'll fix it or they'll see an unravelling there
0: that's that's a good point and I think also the the whole question of 2021 that's kind of a natural point where you think if there's going to be a a sea change in terms of the competitive order that's the kind of natural place for it to be but yeah you never know I mean remember when Mercedes were building up 13 which is the last year of the old rules Mercedes were quick they struggled a bit with tyres particularly in the first half of the season before there was a tire change. They were they, they, they were a winning team in 13 and actually uh, had won in 12 as well. But it was kind of that process. You've kind of got to take that step from and, and each sort of step by step from winning to occasional winners to more consistent winners to, to challengers to champions. And they're almost, Ferrari's still not quite at the point where they've been a compelling challenger. Uh, let's move a little bit onto the drivers, Lucy, because let's say Ferrari's strong enough technically, operationally, reliability, all of these things. The focus then will be on the drivers. Now, Charles Leclerc had the edge last year. Do you think he's ready for a title push? And where does Vettel fit into all of this?
1: Yeah, I think, I think this is one of the most interesting storylines from last year. And I think this is a storyline that will certainly develop this season. Um, I am reevaluating my life a little bit because I declared at the start of the podcast that my bucket list activity was being on this today. Um, I'm the same age as Charles Leclerc and he's potentially going to win a world championship. So maybe He's going to get a world
0: championship before you.
1: Yeah, well, I think that was always going to happen. I'm not. I'm not sure. Well, F1 World Championship was on my bucket list, but you know, yeah. I'm re-evaluating. You've got, a,
2: you've got a better chance of being the first female Formula One World Champion than he does, though. That is so. true.
1: I mean, there is that. Thanks, Scott. That's a small win for me today. I do feel. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna take that. That's. Uh...
0: <laughs> Get some business cards printed. Up.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I will put that in my email signature from now on, and put it in my Twitter bio. That's a good point. Um,
0: business cards. What what century am
2: I living in? sorry I, I, this I, is unraveled dig- this I've is
1: unraveled in its own way now <laughs> yeah, sure, <Leclerc. laughs>
2: the, the pod was off. the pod was off to such a strong start let's let's bring it back let's bring it back you were talking about Leclerc he's brilliant isn't he uh
1: yeah I um I think that he is ready to, to mount a title fight and yeah it's um the relationship between him and Vettel and the way that it um developed like over the course of the season I think in Melbourne there was very much still a um, yeah, I don't know. I think to be an F1 driver, you have to know that you're good enough to be there. But I just, at the beginning of the season, it was very much like, and I, like I don't know, it looked like he realised how lucky he was to be, and sort of felt that and quite junior. And then after Bahrain, and certainly as the season developed, and I guess after Austria and the turning point there, um, I think like his ruthlessness, um, and you could really see that there was an element in him that was yeah had decided that he was going to challenge for the title and feels that he could so I don't see why that wouldn't continue this year and I think the yeah the relationship between him and Vettel can only go one way I don't really think that could improve again um and so it'll be interesting to see what Vettel decides to do
2: they're not going to go back to being best pallid as no, no <laughs> they were they they did start the year quite pally and that the point that you made about sort of the attitude I get or the mentality that mm. Leclerc had at the start of the year is is it's is bang on because i think what what changed was uh was suddenly being in the position to win in in bahrain literally the next time out because he was leclerc was happy to sit back and accept that team order at the end of the australian grand prix mm, it's a exactly. bit like it's a bit like ed do you remember when uh what was it? i think it was in malaysia when the 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 the, the, the either hit trouble or uh, ricardo and verstappen ended up fighting for the win or second place I can't remember which one but basically Verstappen got told sit back and it didn't look like he was going to but he basically banked it he was like okay I'm going to listen to this team order but you kind of got the feeling of next time you owe me and then this and so bringing it back to 2019 and Ferrari when Leclerc got that order in Melbourne he 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 didn't force the issue but in Bahrain he he was on pole it was his race to lose he messed up the start dropped back on the first lap and then when he caught vettel i think he was what within half a lap of being told basically hold position he just nailed him on the run down to to turn 1 and vettel said you know fair game he was the quicker driver but it was just that interesting uh, as soon as he realized the position he was in he's like, there's a win on the line here i'm going to take it and that from that point onwards it literally took one race for Leclerc to assert himself over Vettel. I think from that race onwards, he was the number one driver at Ferrari in terms of the performances. It took a little bit of a it took a little bit too long for him to get the consistency. And Vettel was actually very good over the first third of the season. But now we're coming into this year. I just think with the momentum from last season, the fact that they both had their wrist slaps a couple of times because of their their attitude, I can't really see Vettel coming back at Leclerc over the course of a year in terms of performances and I I agree that that means it, the relationship only goes one way as well. The big challenge is going to be not necessarily is one of Ferrari's drivers ready for the title, it's going to be can they actually put together a title bid when you have two class drivers that might end up at war with each other.
0: Yeah, and look what happened in Interlagos when Vettel basically bulldozed into into, into Leclerc and there's no other way to really describe it because that was... That was uh, uh, Vettel's Vettel's mistake. I think he was just uh, just a little bit agitated after being uh, kind of ambushed, as it were, at the, at the first corner when Leclerc passed him up with that with that slightly unexpected move. I think the whole point about that relationship is Vettel Vettel either will feel he has to reassert himself, or he just has to kind of accept he's going to be the nice guy number two and sort of go into Kimi Raikkonen mode, which I, I just don't think is what what Vettel wants to do at the moment. So that that's going to be really interesting because you're going to have Vettel a bit like Leclerc was at times last season, looking for opportunities to assert himself. That can be a useful driving force to have your two drivers going at each other and pushing each other on, but it's a very fine line between that and shooting yourself in the foot.
1: Exactly, yeah, it's quite volatile and I guess it's another thing that Ferrari probably doesn't need when everything else around them isn't as perfect as they want it to be. Exactly. Um,
0: They might possibly be thinking that if Vettel wants a new Ferrari deal, he might have to be on his best behaviour, shall we say. But yeah. I suspect Vettel, being a serious competitor, a full-time world champion, and a driver who, despite his mishaps and problems in recent years, there is in there a great Grand Prix driver, but he just can't deliver it significantly enough. I think he'll be thinking, I get my new Ferrari deal by, yeah. by taking charge of the team. And that that's something I think you, you can't... It's down to the team to manage it to a point, but there's a point where... The driver has to kind of meet you halfway shall we say and i think yeah. the kind of the, the heart that you see in a champion will be there determined to take to take control i'm
2: i'm gonna i'm gonna take the role of pseudo interviewer quickly because i've got a question <laughs> for you ed and then i've got a quick question for the both of you okay uh but for, but for you specifically ed do you do you think we're now a uh, point where the question mark is more over whether Vettel's capable of a title bid than Leclerc and are you surprised that that dynamic is that way going into 2020?
0: It's a legitimate question but we've not yet seen Leclerc in a title fight at the very very highest level. We've seen it in junior categories and he's fared very very well but I always think of it as a bit of a ladder or maybe a pyramid's a better way of looking at it. Every time you step up there's a step up in level and intensity. The questions that are asked are harder and harder and harder, and everyone has their sort of breaking points. Elite sport is psychological, as I always bore people saying. So it kind of comes a question of: Is there a bit of a breaking point for Leclerc? Does he need to go through that learning process? Inevitably, it's his third F1 season. He will be a better championship contender in his ninth F1 season than in his third. That that's just a fact. Um, it's very very rare you get a driver who's less sort of capable again. You could argue actually Vettel's a less compelling title threat now than he was. Uh, six or seven years ago, with Red Bull, funnily, uh, funnily enough, but that, that's that's unusual. So I think I think they're both legitimate questions. Let's put it this way: Leclerc is fast enough to be a world champion, and I think he's got he's got that that ruthlessness. He's got the drive. He's got the sort of the character profile to be a world champion. But it's just that question of does he need to build up a little bit of experience? Do you need to have some defeats before you can become a victor? Or for example, if you look at Lewis Hamilton, his 2008 world title. You know, amazing achievement in his second season. But it was a it wasn't an imperious campaign. And so you almost wonder whether if Leclerc's going to win the title this year, it might. It's inevitably going to be a campaign that's a little bit scruffy and needs a little bit of help just because of uh, just only his third season. Whereas, you know, if Vettel was, was to come back to be a title contender, I think he could he could cope with some of those things, but he can't avoid enough mistakes and be consistent enough to be the, the established number one in a Ferrari team that's not quite there so there's big questions on both sides but put it this way only one of those two drivers is is fighting for their career this yeah. <laughs> season so if anything I think the bigger question marks actually hang over Vettel at this stage but you never know Leclerc could have a big wobble under pressure you make a few crucial mistakes and then suddenly your head goes and you have to go through that process I mean another one Jenson Button when he won the title in 2009 he had a mid-season a struggle. I mean, yes, the Braun was getting less competitive, but he wasn't getting the best out of it, and he was sort of tightening up. So this is what's fascinating: the, the, to see how people behave. Only thirty-three world champions ultimately since since the world championship started in nineteen fifty. So it's a very, very special combination of your skill set, your ruthlessness, your mentality, and opportunity that that makes a world champion.
2: Exactly. So uh, that, which brings me nicely onto my follow-up question, which is for both of you, and I'm going to be cruel and I'm going to direct it to Lucy first. So which of, so so if you had to put, if it's your money on the table, is it on, if Ferrari has a car capable of fighting for the world championship or winning the world championship, do you put your money on Vettel or Leclerc? And a second part, do you change that answer if the Ferrari is dominant or if it's part of a massive fight between Merck and Red Bull? Oh, good caveat.
1: Ooh. Yeah, that's a very, that's a very good question. Very good interview. Yes, I think it does change depending on, I think, yeah, I would say, I guess it's easy to say Vettel if they have a dominant car just because that's, that's the way that history has gone with, with his titles before and you look at 2011 uh, in sort of that year and it was 2011, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah,
0: well, 2011 was dominant. 13 was was dominant, obviously. 10, and yeah. 12 were a little Won't bit harder. Not
1: so much, but um, yeah. So I think if they have a dominant car, then I would say Vettel um, and Leclerc. If it's a, a it's more of a fight between, yeah, because I guess if you look at like the Verstappen equation, if yeah, I don't know whether that because that's also a very interesting dynamic so yeah I'm gonna try and keep it as simple as I can despite yeah go around the houses a little bit Leclerc if it's a more complex sort of three-way fight Vettel if it's a dominant I think I would like Vettel to win another championship like in my heart yeah I think that would be I think he deserves another one at least uh, but sensibly I guess your had you'd have to say Leclerc
0: it's an interesting question because if if the car's dominant enough that does remove the number of cars that Sebastian Vettel can drive into which has has (laughs) been a problem over the past year and it it just has been a problem in recent recent years I mean look last year in Salagos we had the mistake when he went off in Canada hitting Verstappen at Silverstone there is a a kind of question about red mist there with Vettel Red Bull always found that they could kind of manage him and if they kept his his kind of emotions in check he he could be great, and yeah. they were very good at doing that from the pit wall. Rocky's race engineer, game. Rocker, Rockerland was very very good at that. And I do wonder whether there's an environmental problem with with Ferrari. Slightly different, fr- fractionally different team culture. I'm not. I'm not going to go down the overexcited Italians uh, stereotype, but. There's always slightly different ways of working, etc. And I think it's probably telling that Vettel's not been at his best in a team that's yeah. the pressure cooker that Ferrari is, and with all the machinations. And then I going guess on.
1: that environment's changing with the arrival of Leclerc as well. Exactly, um, it's
0: another ignition point, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's very very difficult. I I'd agree with you, Lucy. It'd be great to see Vettel winning another title. I think he's a, I think he's a, a, a really. I mean, he's not a Lewis Hamilton level of driver because Lewis Hamilton can kind of do it in just about all conditions. Vettel, slightly narrower window, but he's not the drive. He's he's not fundamentally the driver he's been over the past few years. Because if you looked at sort of 19, eighteen, nineteen, you'd say, well, he's 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 sort of very much not his day merchant, and he sort of has his moments and of good and moments of bad. So very, very, very difficult, and that, that's going to be the key dynamic, I think the way the question doesn't change things is whether he's wh- whether Ferrari's dominant or not if Ferrari's in the title fight he's still got to beat Leclerc maybe it's a little bit simpler yeah. or the, rather the equation's got less factors into it if they're dominant but whatever happens he's still, it got, still, to, still got to still comes down to that ultimately But what you can be sure of is Vettel's going into this season thinking yeah from the upgrade I, w- I was back on it I had, the, I had the front end I wanted I had the stable rear I can get the best out of it you know Zuzuka pole that was was tremendous and that that run from Singapore through to the end of the season after that upgrade the qualifying battle was was a bit tighter and and actually I just know Vettel will be saying yeah that that was the real me that that back end of the season when they got the car right and that's the me that they can be at the start of the season so i think you could that there will be a kind of new battle between the pair at the, at the start of the season so that's uh, that's my answer to your question um do you think do you think we should move a little bit on to looking perhaps at the wider story of Ferrari, Scott, because we've talked a lot about Ferrari's sort of local problems in terms of time over the past few years. But it's a team that's got everything it needs to thrive. It gets a bigger share of revenue than anyone else, even if it doesn't win the championship. But you know that that race win figure—it's only won thirteen point five percent of races over the past eleven seasons, which obviously isn't good enough for a team of that size. So what what do you put that down to, and how do you think we should look at the wider picture? Should we say the post the post kind of Todd Schumacher? era ferrari i guess you could you could you could put it as the, why is it so often flatter to deceive
2: uh i think if i if i knew the if i knew the exact answer i'd be earning an absolute fortune i would be living out in marinello and i'd be, be i'd be a special advisor to the race team and i'd be milking that position for all it's worth uh but i think i think part of the problem is um i don't know if i have sympathy for them for this Part of it is they have come up against, as you correctly described, Mercedes, one of, if not the greatest Grand Prix teams in history. It's, this is not a fun era to be a slightly un, like misfiring Ferrari. And I think if you had Mercedes operating at a lower level, Ferrari might have won one or two of the last three titles. So the opposition is better than ever, which is one thing. They don't have a Schumacher. Either Vettel was kind of the whole point was Ferrari didn't sign him to be literally Schumacher too, but that was kind of the the way it was going, wasn't it? The four-time world champion, time he's the one, he's the 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 savior basically for for Ferrari and their hope. So they've lost that kind of central figure that can be trusted, I suppose, to do exactly what is needed on track to get the result. Because I can't imagine Schumacher making the quantity of significant errors that Vettel has made over the last two or three seasons which which that which doesn't help at all plus they've had this such this this such a long period of 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 brilliance with that 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 axis of of power at the top that when it then transitioned into the sort of late noughties, once Schumacher had gone, and then you don't have John Todd, you don't have Ross Braun, you don't have the people that made it such a success. And it is a problem that Mercedes is going to face, if not this year or next year, in the next two or three years or beyond. If that team sticks around, what happens if or when Toto leaves? What happens if James Allison's not there anymore? What happens if Andy Cow's not heading up? The high performance powertrains division. How you structure your organization and how you prepare yourself for change is as important as building that right team in the first place. Mercedes is putting an enormous amount of effort into making sure that they don't have that sort of disruption when people move around. And I think Ferrari, you've got the high profile exits, you have the fact that you don't have a Schumacher person, a Schumacher type person around. I think one of the biggest things has to be that they just haven't managed either the recruitment process properly or the the process of uh, promoting people internally because that's a big thing that Bonotto has tried to do the last two or three years is put the right people in the right places and try and promote from within, stop trying to look outside the organization. So maybe that's part of it as well.
0: I think you hit upon an interesting point there about the kind of the longer-term planning and the looking, looking to the future. And if you look back over that period, for example, 2008 was the last time they, won a, they were in a driver's championship fight and they won the the constructors. But one of the the reasons they didn't start the, the 2009 season with aerodynamic rule change so strongly was they and McLaren both had this problem. They, they'd gone all the way down to the last race in Interlagos. They both brought new parts to, to Interlagos, absolutely going at it tooth and nails. But they hadn't focused enough on on the 2009 change and there were also problems they hadn't really done enough work um, or started early enough on the curse side etc which which held them back a bit and then if you wind forward a little bit to to 2014 again they were too late on the on the hybrid engines they didn't go down because 14 actually had quite big aero rule changes as well which is often forgotten but in thirteen, and this is still Luca de Montezemolo era, he would still sort of sit there in the meetings and say, "No, we've got to be, we've got to be better tomorrow. We've got to be better next week. What have we got for the next race?" Everything was focused, localised, even long after there was any hope of becoming a title challenger in thirteen. Whereas where Mercedes has really been strong is that work. You know, they were they were fiddling around with single engine, single uh, cylinder engine test engines really early before they knew what the final form of the fourteen engine regs were. Yeah. Just because they they took that long term view, it's like actually taking a little bit of this resource and, park and addressing it to the future is going to be harder. Now, obviously, that's a different era. That was Luca de Montezemolo's Ferrari. And de Montezemolo was extremely valuable to, for Ferrari for helping pull it out of the doldrums in the 70s. But Formula One's changed a lot. And, you know, the lead times, It's it's like turning a yeah. massive, heavy... A cargo ship around or something it doesn't turn on a sixpence anymore you can't do a few things and then in three days time suddenly everything's better it you know three years time maybe is, is, is your time scale now they they understand that it's not Montezemolo ferrari anymore and I'm, I'm sure bonotto's got a good feeling for that and a good understanding of how long it takes but then it's a question of how much pressure there is etc if i was them i'd be looking at 2021 as a, a good opportunity the ideal for them obviously will be to be in title contention this year and then they need to kind of balance things up. But I think they've whatever happens, whether they're struggling this year, well if, if they're struggling this year, they have to understand the underpinning problems. If they're in a title fight this year, they have to fight that as hard as they can but not neglect the twenty one regs. You know, they they're already doing twenty one where all the teams are, but you need to gradually move a greater percentage of your technical resource onto that. Everyone needs to do that. So I think that that kind of judgment is important because Right now, there's a greater chance of them being a title-winning team in 21 than in, in 20. And because they're aero regs and aero, you know, it's not exactly a weakness, but it's a relative weakness compared to, say, you'd probably take the Red Bull aero team and the Mercedes aero team right now over Ferrari by, by, by a small amount. So that's, that's the big question, isn't it? And then because it's Ferrari, there's all this pressure, isn't there? And that, again, it comes down to the, the corporate culture, which Mercedes talk about a lot. So have they got the kind of, has Bonotto got the steel? to take those decisions and say, actually I'm gonna I'm gonna sacrifice a little bit of improvement now because that's gonna put us better for next year.
2: I think that Bonotto is slightly steelier than um than people may sort of see on the surface because he has he has adopted this sort of friendlier uh he's been a lot open with the, the the media he's been very forward-facing the public have seen seen what he's about and he's got this kind of a bit of a jovial attitude to things serious when he needs to be but generally speaking is very polite happy to speak about serious issues uh, and it, all, all very well and good but given that this is we're talking you know a, a, an italian company machiavellian pol- politics etc etc you don't rise from you don't rise through the ranks to being the the, the team principal. Given his background is on the engineering side as well, and he goes way back to I think he I think Ferrari was like his first job outside of, out, as soon as he finished uni, and goes back to the the Ferrari test team back in the the early Schumacher days and stuff like that. So he has he started from the bottom in engine in an engineering sense, and now he's right at the top. No way do you make that progress within Ferrari within the way Marinello works. No way do you work, work, make that progress, work your way up unless you're not steely as hell and you've got a little bit of a, a you know, a little bit of a, a, a nasty side to you, or at least a, able to play the game. So I, 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 think he's capable of doing it. It's just whether he deploys it in the right way. Yeah,
0: he's certainly got a ruthless
2: streak.
1: Yeah, that, that I mean, that was in that game of past the question. That was what I was going to ask. Obviously, Ed, you, you've seen lots of different eras of Ferrari, and Scott, you you have as well. Do you? Do you think Bonotto can make a difference? Uh, is he the is he the right fit? He, you know, as Scott alluded to, he's he's sort of a different choice to the ones that we that we've seen in recent years for team principal. Uh, do you think he can be the one to make a difference ultimately?
0: Potentially, so it's it's just very very difficult. You almost it's one of those questions you can only really answer once it's happened. Yeah. But I think he's. I mean, as Scott said, he's not the kind of. I think there is this image of him, the sort of the spectacled, quiet. Engineering type head buried in a laptop, but that's not Benotto. I mean, yes, he is a great engineer. He's he's a great engineering leader, but he does have the ability to to play it tough when he needs to to be. And and he's an ambitious guy. So I think there there is that. He's definitely got that that edge needed to make it work. It's just a question of whether he's got the the supreme competence needed to make it work and balance all those competing political areas. You know, who knows what the pressure will be on the team. And it, and if, if he's got people on high saying to him, oh, well, why aren't we doing well right now? He needs to be able to say to them, actually, no, don't worry too much about this season. Yeah. You know, yeah, we'll do what we can, but we can't compromise next season for, for this. Because in racing, everyone wants to everyone wants to win now, don't they? That, yes. That's what you want to do. But the danger is that in trying to win right now, all you're doing is making yourself not win for a longer period. So it's, it's, a, it's really tough. Formula One teams and... Technical side, a very, very uh, complicated beast. But just in general terms, Lucy, how important do you think it is for F1 that that Ferrari does actually win a title again everyone at some talk- point? Well, <laughs> <laughs> everyone talks about how how much everyone loves Ferrari, etc. Yeah. When when Formula One does well, when Ferrari does well you know is it actually, should sort of neutral formula one fans be thinking actually yeah it would be good for ferrari to, to get a win
1: yeah i think so definitely there's some sort of like great sweeping romance to ferrari and formula one isn't there and i think that there's more of that than there is with any other team yeah sort of mercedes have lots of fans because they're winning and they're brilliant and they're so efficient at everything that they do and Red Bull was a bit different and a bit quirky and not really what everybody was used to when they came into F1 and they were successful but Ferrari is just, yeah, there's just that... Romance to it, I guess, and you look at Monza, and even when I watch, you know, I've worked lots of ev, not as many as you guys, but like on the news desk and that kind of thing, and you sort of get a little bit desensitized, I guess. But then Monza, and when Leclerc won at Monza, even I got goosebumps just to see like how much that meant to everybody that was there. Um, and I remember watching that race and just thinking, oh, this is why I want to do this because that moment and like being able to experience that moment in any small, minute way must just be amazing um I can't imagine what it was like to, to have been there but so I think it is really really important to the longest running team so of course I think Formula One will do better when Ferrari is won but then how much of that is it's such a great story to see them get there as well um so yeah I guess it's quite complicated but I think F1 would definitely be poorer without Ferrari
2: I think uh F1 needs Ferrari as much as Ferrari needs F1 whenever the conversation turns to ferrari quit threats or or is this when ferrari finally leaves i I can't see it happening i think as long as f1 exists and it can legitimately call itself the pinnacle of motorsport ferrari will will be part of it because it's a big part of the the appeal for the brand Uh, it helps sell and position the brand as prestigious and part of this sort of mystical, un- unattainable level of performance, basically, that only a select few car manufacturers are capable of doing. That's what Ferrari sort of exists to be. It helps put it in a in an incredible marketing position around the world uh, to a global audience, builds this massive fan base, and then in return, it brings that massive fan base to Grand Prix. And Monza is a, is a brilliant example. It was incredible when, when Leclerc won last year. His radio sh- sort of shriek over the finish line was just yeah i agree with what you say you do get goosebumps you try and you stay neutral from the point of view of it doesn't really matter who wins and who doesn't but you 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 can't help but enjoy those moments because it's it's something special and
1: well yeah it's like a formula one fan first and foremost it's really special to see something like that i guess
2: yeah exactly because you're sort of you can be part of the emotion that's why it's why i so i'm a i'm a I'm a big football fan. I know that Ed, you don't have a particular football team. I do have my little runarounds in, in South London that aren't very good. But I have a connection with that club. And when they score, when they win, it 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 gets me. It makes me feel emotional. And Ferrari fans feel that like no other. But even as an F one fan, you can still get it. It still means something when when Leclerc's on top of the podium at Monza, you that's in that single moment you can see why Ferrari is so important to Formula One. And winning races is one thing and is really valuable to F1. It's been really good that they've at least taken the fight at times to Mercedes the last few years. But it's been so long since that period of domination that I do think the world is ready for a Ferrari F1 title again. It certainly wouldn't be as badly received as the last of the Schumacher titles, for example.
0: Yeah, there's no question. I think I think F1 would, would benefit from that at, at some stage. I think even if you're a, a, a diehard disliker of uh of ferrari you, you wouldn't begrudge them getting one because it's, it's for the for the wider good as it were uh, should we move on to a few listener questions as ever our uh, our twitter accounts at uh, we are the race you can find us at we are the race on various social media uh, outlets I asked for a few questions so let, let's try and pick out a few quick fire answers uh we're, we're going for here so here's one for here's one for you scott this is from uh, at D whitehouse 88 who says, who do you think will be the next Ferrari Academy driver to get the push into F1? Schumacher, Eilert, or another? And of course, there's, there's loads of drivers on that on that scheme. The, the full list of Ferrari Academy drivers is Giuliano Alessi, Marcus Armstrong, Enzo Fittipaldi, Callum Jan Gianluca Petikov, Mick Schumacher, and Robert Schwartzman.
2: And don't forget the two new FDA members that they've, they've brought in for, for this year. You have Dino Beganovic from Sweden. Get in. <laughs> very happy about that and uh Charles Leclerc's brother as well of Arthur. course th-
0: this is my mistake for checking their website to make sure i didn't miss anyone they've they've not updated their driver list yet
2: we can add their uh their website management of the fda to the things that ferrari needs to improve for 2020 uh, uh it's mick schumacher is the answer to that question he is um he's at front of the queue because he's in formula 2 i know Ilot is as well and so is people like Alacy, but the power of the the Schumacher name, the desire to have him in F one, and the fact that he is a he is a good driver as well. Maybe he isn't the the best F two driver. He might not win the title uh, this year. I wouldn't even say he's necessarily the favourite, but I think he is a he's a decent driver. Ferrari want to see him there, and I'd be surprised if he wasn't driving an Alfa Romeo in twenty twenty one.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that one. We've got a question from Rohit Subram30 on, on Twitter, who says, if Bottas does well this season and earns himself another year at Mercedes and Lewis stays, do you think George Russell should be looking at alternative management slash team options? Top nuts driver in the wrong car, so many teams would be interested in getting him? well certainly plenty of teams will be interested Lucy but what, what do you think of the idea we might look elsewhere?
1: Uh, yeah I probably think it would be wise to maybe keep one eye open to something else I think there's probably a risk of him getting squeezed out if Bottas gets a gets another contract we don't know how likely that will be obviously looked very unlikely for quite a long time last year and then ended up um, sort of being a foregone conclusion in the end but yeah I think George Russell probably should keep one eye open because I, I think he's a, a real talent and he's demonstrated that at Williams with basically absolutely no um material to do so um and it would be a shame if he sort of he was one of the drivers to be squeezed out by a lack of options and that sort of bottleneck at the top when there are so many names out there sort of Verstappen being tatted for Mercedes um Leclerc whatever Uh, Leclerc not now obviously because of his new contract but yes I think he should probably look elsewhere if not um moving up the grid by the end of 2020
0: got a question here from at C one which is, despite being much maligned and having his place in F1 questioned, uh, Lance Stroll is still the second youngest driver on the grid. Do you see him getting to a much better performance level given time? Where we seeing the extent of what he has to offer? Well, I think Lance Stroll is a very interesting case. I think fundamentally he's a quick racing driver. We have seen that. Qualifying has been very disappointing for him. And if you watch his onboard laps, there's just lots and lots and lots of little errors. I think there's a little bit of a mental block almost uh, Almost there. There are some question marks about whether that's necessarily the best environment for him, because we often see that this is a general comment about drivers who've got, should we say, infinite backing. They almost th- there isn't kind of that level of pressure that they kind of have to get there and nail it. So there are questions about Lance Stroll about just how dedicated he is, because if you're if you're ninety five percent dedicated at the top level of elite sport, then that might as well be naught percent. So, but, you know, Lance is still sticking at it and we we have seen moments where things have come through. I think the first thing he needs to do, Checo Perez is quite a good teammate for him in that he's a massively accomplished midfield operator, but he is a driver who, if Stroll can get his qualifying together, he should be able to start matching and qualifying. And we do see some decent Stroll race performance. He's very aggressive on first laps. sometimes he maybe takes more chances than, than a wise and some other drivers find him a bit frustrating, but... There's a driver in there. That's the important thing. He's not a no hopper, who's been put in because of, because his dad leads a consortium that owns owns the team. But for me, the big question is: Does he have the mentality, the desire, the approach to put the absolute nth degree of effort in in order to unlock that underlying ability? Because I don't think the underlying ability is that is the the question for uh, for him. Um, there's a question here. Lucy, probably <laughs> best direct to you because you, uh, you were around W Series a lot last year. This is from uh, Agile Harvey on Twitter, which is about uh, Jamie Chadwick, who's been re signed as uh, Williams development driver. Do you feel she has the potential talent to be the next female uh, in Formula One in the coming years? Of course, the last female driver to enter properly a Grand Prix weekend yeah. was Giovanna Ramati back in 1992 in, like, in a <laughs> dreadful, dreadful Brabham that, you know. Lewis Hamilton would, would struggle to qualify that car on on most occasions.
1: Yeah, uh, well, obviously, this is my favourite topic to talk about. But um, I did spend a lot of time in W Series last year. Um, yeah, I think it's really interesting. The simple answer to this is yes, I think she is. Uh, but it's very easy to say that about any... Female driver that's doing relatively well or is newsworthy at the moment, yeah we've said it so many times before, we said about Susie Wolff. we said about Simona de Silvestro um so this answer is yes, but I think she um still has quite a lot to do, and ultimately, as much as uh i don 't want to say this for any way that it could be taken that we could then uh <laughs> um I think there is quite a lot of physical. Uh, like she has to work on her physicality um that's such a hypocritical thing for me to be saying Mm -hmm. um but and i when i spoke to her last year she openly admitted that she um not had struggled but that she had been surprised by how much more she needed to do um with that um short term i think she needs to win w series this year and that's really interesting in itself because um obviously last year she Basically dominated. Well, not dominated, but she was there in Hockenheim, and it was very apparent that she was going to run away with the season. Um, but I think this year, when the field has had a little bit more time to adapt, it will be very interesting to see if there is anybody to challenge her, or whether it is, you know, she's favourite to win again this year. Um, it'll be interesting to see if she can do that.
0: A uh, question here for for Scott from at androsid ninety three. So we've seen Racing Point recently be a negative about the twenty twenty one rules. Do you think Mercedes are the ones complaining using Racing Point? Since they have a close partnership. I mean before you answer that I can say Racing Point are definitely being very honest about their position on the rules. Their uh, their, their concerns are I I definitely know are, are very much held by the by the team.
2: Yeah, so uh, if if I'm being asked about whether Racing Point are being honest or spouting off what Mercedes wants. I think I can say with absolute certainty that Racing Point are being very honest in their opinions because they're very against the rules, and I'm pretty sure that's what you said. Ed. So if you adopted that position, uh, I I shall adopt that position too. I can't imagine that it's becoming being used as a mouthpiece. There will obviously be some kind of alignment because it's a, it's a Mercedes customer team, um, but that is a team that has its own ambitions and its own intent in its own right. So. They, they will have their own interests at heart. You can't turn... Lawrence Stroll wants to turn Racing Point into the best team in F1. He has... He's, he's putting loads of money into it. There's lots of investment, new factory, etc, etc. And yeah, okay, they don't have a top-line driver lineup at the moment, but they want to build that to become a top-line team. And just... If you went... If they just went around doing Merck's bidding for them, then they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to achieve that.
0: Well, uh, we got loads of questions for this podcast, and in fact, some of them uh, we we answered on last week's podcast. So you can have a look back there. That was basically a, a solid podcast of of listener questions. But we will try and uh, take listener questions on uh, uh, regularly on this podcast. So uh, feel free to tweet uh, at We Are the Race, or you can tweet at me at Ed F One if you have questions you'd like uh, you'd like to be addressed. But we do also like to uh, to finish the podcast with the, the newly established Scott Mitchell. Uh, uh, segments I, don't, I think we need scott's think, people s- scott's people it's called well you've submitted that so i, I, I will take suggestions for what scott mitchell's <laughs> segment should be called scott we, we've scott's got scott's
2: we've people. got a logo now ed we've, we've got it we've committed to it it's it's um it is done it's in it's written down it's on it's been chiseled into stone mate where's this the logo you haven't seen uh, if, logo. You ha- if you have a look on if you have a look on twitter if you have a look at uh I, i've retweeted it i'm at scott at s mitchell f1 but Mitchell Adam, of Australian fame, an Australian motorsport journalist of some note, has done a beautiful, beautiful Photoshop of the the, sin, the Simpsons scene where Bart and Lisa have, uh, have their show and Bart has a segment called Bart's People and my head's been photoshopped onto Bart and I couldn't be happier with it. I couldn't be happier with it. I've made it in my Twitter cover photo. Yeah. That's how happy I am <laughs> with it.
0: I think at this point I want to say that my Twitter cover photo is Roberto Moreno in a Eurobrun. Which I think yeah, exactly.
2: Better. Which makes me much cooler than you. So <laughs> that's, that's not a high bar, to be fair. No. So I'm I'm delighted. So yeah. So we C- get on yeah, with the d- late.
0: Do explain what the segment is and uh, what what nonsense questions you're asking people. Exactly.
2: So the premise of Scott's People is to basically throw throw a one, throw a question to the audience. We we love having questions from our listeners, but this is to just get a little bit of insight uh from 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 them so the way i've started it at the moment is i'm i've just been really curious to see the sort of the more interesting places that a drive that an f1 driver has been spotted and we got a brilliant response the first time we did this and it was so good that i even had i had too many to read out and i've since had a few more so i figured for this week i'm going to stick on the same theme because i did miss i did miss a few um because he because he designed the logo, I'm going to give Mitchell Mitchell Adam the first shout out. Uh, he he spent some time living in 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 Milton Keynes. He said that uh, he and uh, Daniel Kiviat were stuck on the, the in the in the same not British citizen border queue at Heathrow for so long that their bags weren't at the carousel and they both had to go to the luggage service to to work out uh, exactly what had happened. And Mitchell claims he also consoled Kiviat about the fact that he was having to go to Milton Keynes. Uh, Mitchell was not a fan of mk i got a photo sent in from keith oswin absolutely gorgeous photo Uh, another uh, another
0: motorsport journalistic luminary and legend
2: exactly world rally championship journalist i believe uh he uh sent in a pic of he spotted dc driving a merc through uh through through monaco um through through casino square actually so he asked dc to, to to stop so he could take a pic it's it's a that car is that car's lovely i'm going to give that a retweet actually more people need to see that uh i got loads this this was a bit concerning because i kind of feel like you should keep this sort of stuff private lots of people have spotted drivers in lots of people have (laughs) spotted drivers in toilets like and they feel that that is something that they should share with us that i i kind of get it but at the same time like I thought the unwritten rule of a urinal was you don't look around and you don't clock who's in there with you. But anyway, apparently Chris Phillips was stood next to um, Ivan Capelli in the toilets behind Silverstone Pits in 1987, immediately before qualifying.
0: Near winner of one of my favourite Grand Prix, the 1990 French Grand Prix. Uh,
2: Exactly. A Capelli story has to get a shout out, doesn't it? So that's absolutely nailed on. And I'm going to give, I'll give one for, for Donna as well, spotted bosom chums George Russell and Alex Albon catching up in a coffee shop before they started their rookie F1 seasons last year, which I thought was quite cool. Uh, because George and Alex, obviously, they go way back. They're if you If you follow either of them on Instagram, they are absolutely like, it feels like they're inseparable, but maybe that's sort of a slight overstatement. And I'm going to end with one of our own, Sam Smith our former E journalist, just purely because I forgot to do it last week and he got, he got a little bit upset. Um, and it's also quite a good one. He saw Alex Caffey sipping a creme de menthe in a jacuzzi at a Joburg Hotel in 1999. He says it was a creme de menthe or some kind of elaborate drink. So I'm going to give Sam the benefit of the doubt there. Um, there was also lots of... I saw an F1 driver or team boss having a really leery drink in Monaco. So, I'm guessing that's maybe Friday, Thursday night, maybe at a Grand Prix. Or Sunday night? Maybe Sunday night. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. But yeah, so again, another a, a, a very good uh, run through of, uh, of sort of just random places, basically, that people have seen F1 drivers. I would still like to have a few more of those because I've, I I've, still got, one think, if
0: I've got one if you'd like it.
2: Well, I don't trust you because I don't trust you to have actually seen that driver. I'm and not, do you know why I don't trust you? Uh, I, I have a little bit of a bad record of recognising people in general, even people you know, I know. Context Lucy, is very important for me. Lucy, do you, but you're, do you, yeah, but you literally saw a driver at a racetrack. Uh, <laughs> have you, Lucy, have you ever heard of the case of Ed Straw basically completely ignoring Rob Huff? No. It was at Goodwood. I was at the members' meeting in 2014, the meeting, 2014 yeah, yeah. or fifteen, and uh, we, were, we, were in the, we were in the paddock. We were having a chat to, to a few people. Um, Huffy was one of them uh, but he was sort of on the periphery of the group and he sort of came over and said and he looked to Ed who he knew very well from world touring car days maybe even BTCC I or first, just I first ran
0: into him when he was uh, doing running
2: clear cup this isn't helping you No, no, this, no, is, no. this is bad, <laughs> stop talking uh, and so Huffy just turns and goes oh alright Ed and Ed just sort of goes like, just nods <laughs> I, I For thought the benefit I, of the listener. that, I, was, a, I, I that thought, was a confused that was a nod, look and yeah. a nod.
0: I thought he was. I thought I was in the way. I spend a lot of my life being in the way of people, so naturally, if people I don't necessarily immediately recognise speak to me, I assume I'm just in the way. So I thought, sort of, shuffled out the way, which I, I appreciate. looked a uh, a bit a bit sinister. But I, I will say in my defence. He was wearing
2: a hat, so yeah. In, in fairness, he was wearing a hat. So without that signature Rob Huff head, how on earth can you possibly know who it is? <laughs> but, but I can. But you, but you, you were apologetic when I pointed out to you that that's Rob Huff. You were like. Oh, I should have known who that was. <laughs> yeah, I, I
0: just just didn't, didn't recognize. And context is is everything. So, to anyone who knows me, does it, if I don't say hello to you, it, it, you will pass me. It's not me, me being rude. I just haven't clocked you. There's a yeah, yeah I think it's a, a degree. Of, there's a degree of face blindness going on there. But this one was in, in uh, independently corroborated, and I did see sometime a cellar driver Alan Berg in a pub near Darlington.
2: Oh, okay. All right. Well, I will allow that, um, and I'm also. I've not thought of this on the spot. I thought of this a while back and I wasn't entirely sure whether I would commit to it as this week's question or next week's question, should I say. This question hasn't been vetted, so I'm a little bit (laughs) worried. For for, for, for Scots people. I think you'll be favourite. I I want... One of my favourite Instagram accounts is non-league dogs, which is just pictures of dogs that are at non-league football matches. Brilliant. So I want to see... It's it's an extra Scots people point if it's a dog. But I want to see animals at race tracks. I I, I I just like I, to say
0: I'm not. We're not encouraging people to take dogs to race tracks because normally
2: they're not popular. Not don't let them on the track. That is, Bruno Senna would not a, approve. I don't think if a dog turned up to a racetrack. Um, but I I want That's what I want to see. I I I want to see. I want to see or hear stories of uh, animals at race tracks, preferably
0: dogs. I, I once uh, went to a Lewis Hamilton. Uh, one of the little press gatherings with sort of five or six journalists at the end of a test day. Uh, so it must have been in Spanish there, I can't remember which one in which Roscoe the dog did attend, and he was at the he was sat by Lewis in the press conference. I uh, uh, well, in a little press gathering, press conference wasn't as grandiose a press conference. Just sat at uh, a table in the hospitality, so I was able to to briefly uh, briefly stroke Roscoe, because I'm very exactly. I'm very very pro dogs and uh, exactly. dog you are I, I <laughs> I'd, I'd be pro dog I think dogs should attend many more media sessions.
2: Yeah, I I absolutely agree. But that is that is the magic. That is the magic that is Scots people. It's bringing these kind of topics that deserve some airtime to the airwaves via podcast. Which, obviously, as you now know, Ed, I'm a massive fan of.
0: Well, yes, you, your your podcast listening is boosted. Uh, uh, there would be a bonus point for anybody who can supply evidence of a Formula One driver at a non-league football match. That will be the uh, <laughs> that will be the uh, the big challenge. <laughs> We you can say. invite
1: them onto the podcast if they if they did that. Maybe. It Depends
0: how good the uh, the, the photo answer is because there's probably yeah. yeah and and there, there might be some uh, definition of non-league varies as well. But uh, I'd like to, I'd say formally organised non-league. We're getting a little bit off the uh, <laughs> off, off the topic there. Should we uh, Should we wrap things up before we go? I think uh, we, should. we should. Yeah, yeah, we'll go we've, we've
2: gone well <laughs> off
0: piece. It's well, well off piece. There's nothing nothing wrong with uh, we doing that. Yes, yeah, so well, we're certainly encouraging uh, interaction. This podcast will be out every Monday and we'll do some extra episodes when uh, major news breaks that needs a little bit of immediate uh, delving into. But this, this podcast now is available on iTunes and various uh, podcast places, so please do subscribe. We very, very much appreciate it. You can give us a review on iTunes if you, uh, if you so choose. Well, if you like it, please give us a review. If you don't like it, don't worry, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go without the, uh, out the review. Don't feel, don't feel obliged to. Uh, but yeah, you can interact with us on Twitter at at we are the race and on um, Facebook, Instagram, uh, the usual, and uh, at Scott Mitchell F1, if you want to get involved in uh, in what's provisionally titled Scott's people. And for podcast fans, this is just the first of a, of a, a range of podcasts the race will be producing. So uh, keep an eye out as over the coming months there will be some uh, additional ones brought into circulation, uh, both related to F1 and uh, other forms of motorsport. So thanks very much to Scott Mitchell and Lucy Mawson, and we should be back next week.